Hello and welcome to Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler and this week we've got a great lineup. Evan Lucas, Chief Market Strategist at InvestSmart on the markets. David Marr, political columnist for The Guardian about politics. Sally Auld, Chief Economist at JP Morgan Australia, brings us up to date on the economy. And Steve Sammartino, author and futurist, tells us about what's going on in technology. Now to talk about the markets and whether we're in a bear market or not, here's Evan Lucas, the market strategist for Invest Smart. Evan, the markets are all over the place at the moment, but I spoke this week to Jeff Wilson of Wilson Asset Management, and he said he thinks the bear market has begun. We're in a bear market now. What do you think of that? Yeah, it's an interesting point. From my perspective, there is still a few more signals that really need to trigger up in my face. And, and what I mean by that is we've got four that are there out of the 16 that City follow. There is three out of the 10 that uh, Macquarie follow. So they're coming. I, I'm not seeing the signals enough yet to, to, to confirm that view. It's certainly very much on the cards. And the way market behaviour, and if you are a behavioralist in terms of market theory, you would suggest this is it. And what normally I mean by that is that if you look at market theory on momentum and on the behaviour idea, the even good stories gets a negative reaction, bad stories get a hugely bad reaction, and there is no almost rhyme or reason um, to, to how it trades. So that that's what a lot of people on that side are saying. You've also then got the, the, the one that everybody is highlighting, and that's particularly in the, the US Treasury yield curve. Uh, we've got inversion between the two and five. So what that means is that the two-year yield in the US is actually higher than the five-year by about two basis points as of this morning. The one that I need to see is is actually the the two and ten year. That's the one that everybody concentrates on on very very strongly. It's signalled the last uh, ten recessions in the states. Uh, that's where the ten year falls below the two year. And the moment the difference is about sixteen basis points. So there's still a little way to go there. So. I understand the reasoning and I understand why it's a call to be made. I just haven't seen enough signals yet to say, yep, this is absolutely without doubt the start of a bear market and we're going to 20% down. In recent years, the definitions of corrections and bear markets have solidified a little mm -hmm. around correction is 10%, bear market 20%. But the thing about yep. those definitions is that they're in hindsight, they're, they're backward looking. Mm -hmm. yep. So by the time you get to 20% to say, yes, this is a bear market, it's already down 20%, right? And Correct. the bear market, the bear market was underway actually when it was down 1%, but we just didn't know it at the time. So the Australian market is down 13% from the end of August, so definitely yep. a correction. The question, I suppose, is whether we find out that there's another 7% once it's happened. Yeah, and look, so the way I'd answer that question is completely agree. Um, and, and again, part of any good portfolio strategy, any good investment strategy is that you should always be monitoring it and making sure that you're diversified across all asset classes so that you can withstand an equity pullback. We know that equity is obviously the most, uh, the highest level of risk on, on the, the risk return sort of scale uh, and, and therefore you do experience this, but they are also over the longer period of time, the best returners. Um, and history shows you that time and time and time again, they are. So getting back to your question though, 
the, about the possible 7% movement. So what I would probably start looking at are, are probably the fundamentals and, and value. And that's the next question. A lot of value investors are starting to actually put a bit more of a smile on their face because things are getting a little bit more attractive, a little bit more value. They do look longer term. We're talking sort of 5, 7, 10, 15 years. And if you look at the ASX, the premium that was inside of it has now come out quite substantially, as it should, and it's actually trading at an ever so slight discount to its long-run average. So the ASX at the moment is about 14.4, 14.6 times forward blended earnings, and it normally runs at about 15. So there is an argument that the pullback has actually created long-term opportunity and that there may be those fundamental investors who have been sitting on the sidelines for a long time saying, I can't find anything to buy, it's too expensive, blah, 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 that now starts to reposition. So push-pull, I understand that, look, if we were to walk into 2019 and the US was to obviously start to really slow down, uh, Europe had another bad year like this year or the the big elephant in the room for us as Australia is is China and China really slowed down, then you'd clearly get caught up in, in the macro momentum rather than actually what I just argued on fundamentals. But but there is signs that, again, this has all happened very quickly. We are talking about a two to three month movement, a downside market historically over the last 20 to 25 years. If you look at any more of those down movements that we've had, 2002, 2009, which we know about with regards to the GFC, so 2008, uh, all that kind of stuff, the, the movement is normally about nine months. So we're halfway through. So that, that's the other part that certainly goes in my head that we may have to wait to probably sort of April, May to reassess and, and whether or not we can get some clear air. So you mentioned before we've seen four of the 16 signals. I can't remember the firms you mentioned. So four of 16 C- signals City, from yep. somebody, Citigroup, yep. and then three of somebody else's 10 signals. Macquarie, yep. So pick one or two of the of the signals, the seven or 12 signals that we haven't seen. What, okay, what so, should we what should we look for? I mean, obviously they can't all be equally important. So what are the true. what are the ones that we should worry about? Okay, so yeah, good question. So one that I've already pointed out was was the two and ten year um, with the US uh, US Treasury yield. So that hasn't been triggered yet. However, it is getting probably more amber rather than than sort of uh, a big flashing red light. So it's getting towards the red. Uh, I would also look at unemployment. Um, that is a, a big one. Unemployment is still very very strong. Overseas, I would actually argue that employment in Australia is pretty strong, um, and the growth of it has been has been reasonably well. Um, forward-looking indicators like the PMI numbers, so that's the Manufacturing and Services uh, Purchasing Managers Index, they are still expanding um, and expanding still pretty reasonably well. They're another one I'd look at. The other thing I'd look at is sort of the ones that really sort of catch my attention uh, in terms of. Cyclicality is momentum indicators. They're sort of holding neutral. Um, if I saw those all of a sudden very quickly turn red, then I would be very much on that idea um, because that shows you that there's all of that. So in employment, um, the, the the momentum indicators and the bond market, they're all different in their own space and they all capture different things. If they all of a sudden, those three all married up, that's a good enough signal to me that suggests that everything else will follow with it and it will all happen very quickly. So that's what I'm waiting to see. Good on you, Evan. Thanks. Thanks, Alan. Members on my right will cease interjecting. The Leader of the House will cease interjecting. And now on to politics and all the polit- political action this week has been overseas in Washington and London. But uh, the one thing going on here has been the Ruddock Report on Religious Freedom which is out today. And to talk to talk about that, here's David Maher, political columnist for The Guardian. David, would I be right in thinking the freedom of religion uh, laws, if they come, 
uh, will be designed to let churches off other forms of discrimination? No, it's it's designed to give them legal protection for doing um, what they want to do anyway, which is particularly to, shall, shall we use a really anodyne word, disadvantage um, gay teachers and gay students. You, you don't need a Religious Freedom Act to do nice things to people. You need legal protections of this kind when you plan to do awful, awful things to people. And um, despite the fact that polls show that Support, for instance, for punishing school kids for being gay is currently running at about 9% in Australia. That's the public support for a move of that kind. The Prime Minister is backing some kind of legal mechanism which will allow religions, and we're not just talking Christianity, to pursue behaviour of that kind. Um, it is amazing that a government with almost no political capital left would venture any on an enterprise of this kind, but Morrison seems determined to do it. Well, it's a continuation of culture wars, I suppose. You know, I think it's more particular than that. Um, the thing about the culture wars is that, you know, that they're supposed to be about morality and the great principles of civilization and all that kind of thing. And, you know, it's pretty clear they're about white capitalism. Um, but, but, um, but this is a corner of the culture wars where there is almost no public endorsement for the fight, almost none. And even the culture wars, which are you know, designed to make minority positions you know, palatable, um, you would imagine them hesitating before bringing on this particular brawl. But no, the government is talking about taking it to the elections next year as an issue. It's remarkable, remarkable. So... Uh I suppose one of the one of the problems issues to discuss is the fact that there's a fundamental and anti-discrimination laws. No, look, that, there's an even more fundamental. There's an even, well, yes, but there's an even more fundamental conflict, and that is um, mm -hmm. that religions impose rules, and those rules um, those rules um, limit uh, limit rights, and there's always therefore a contest of rights, and. I'm actually, I'm actually all for the notion of a of um, protection for religious liberty, but you can only do it in the context of general protections for the community for liberty as well. Now, uniquely, Australia doesn't have that for all sorts of reasons, not least um, the the astonishing figure of culture wars in this country and the cleverness with which they've been fought. We don't have that. So, if you put into place a standalone piece of legislation which protects religious liberty um, and don't put it in the context of balancing everyone's liberties, then that's when the train crash occurs. And we seem to be heading for that train crash. Yes, doing it in terms of exemptions from anti-discrimination laws is a bit clumsy, but what the churches are trying to do is the same thing in another way. And of course, they're showing a remarkable lack of courage in admitting exactly what they want to do. It's wonderful rhetoric, you know, ethos, protect the ethos of our faith, et cetera, et cetera. But no one is going to give them the right to define for themselves what they can impose on other people because of this ethos. It's going to have to be listed and defined. And that brings us right back to where we began, which is that for many religious um, of many faiths, 
punishing homosexuals is a crucial religious act. And, the, and, and therefore the state has to determine whether or not to allow it to happen. And what's more, to happen with public money. In the UK about 20 years ago, they put in place a rule. They said, look, if you are going to um, deny service to people, deny employment to people, expel people because, say, they don't live up to the rules of sexuality, and that also, of course, means single mothers and divorcees and adulterers as well as homosexuals, um, then you do it with your own money. No public money for that. That's just not something you spend public money doing. And the oddest thing happened, Alan. Um, <laughs> the, those organisations in Britain suddenly found it wasn't absolutely crucial to their ethos. <laughs> yes. So uh, bringing it back to the political context, David, I suppose what you're saying uh, is, is in terms of Scott Morrison that uh, if he proceeds with this, it will remove any last shreds of hope he might have to win the next election. Uh, look, I wouldn't put it in, in, in as apocalyptic terms as that, but it ain't an election winner. And the other thing, of course, is that the tensions within his own party around this will be phenomenal um, because this is, this is um, an issue which only, um, you know, which only excites a small number, but, but a very well-organised and determined number within the coalition ranks. Um, because these people are politicians and they look at the result in Victoria and they look at the result in Wentworth and they look at opinion polls and realise that this stuff is really on the nose. Thanks, David. Thank you, Alan. Now, here's Sally Ald, the Chief Economist at JP Morgan, to tell us about the economy. Well, Sally, we saw national accounts. The quarterly figure was half what uh, was expected. But is it fair to say that the, the big issue is whether the housing recession that we're seeing uh, spills over to the rest of the economy now? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's probably going to be the key question for 2019. And, and that can happen through a number of channels. I mean, one is obviously the construction cycle because... We know that house prices generally lead the dwelling construction cycle, and so I think most economists, including ourselves, you know, expect that residential construction will detract from growth modestly next year. So that story is reasonably easy to get a handle on, just given the amount of data you have and and um, the the sort of forward-looking nature of that data. So I think we're pretty comfortable about that story. I guess the one that's going to prove to be pretty critical for the economy's fortunes next year will be the consumption story. And this is the, you know, the wealth effect that economists talk about where, you know, if people perceive that the value of their wealth is is falling, then they save more and, and consume less. So, um, you know, I would probably say that when you look at the RBA's forecast for next year, you know, they're almost assuming that the wealth effect is negligible. Um, and that's why, you know, maybe the third quarter GDP numbers might have given them a little bit of a fright in the sense that, you know, the, the real driver of weakness in those numbers was actually household consumption in, in the three months to September. So what do the national accounts and subsequent uh, consumer sentiment surveys tell you about what consumption is looking like right now? Well, it sort of tells you that it doesn't look great. The problem we have is that, you know, unusually, and, and I don't know that anyone can really explain this, is that consumption has exhibited a bit of a, a sawtooth pattern in the last sort of year or two. So you get 
a strong quarter followed by a weak quarter followed by a strong quarter followed by a weak quarter. So the optimists amongst us would say, well, we shouldn't read too much into the third quarter number because, you know, if the pattern holds, we should get a strong one next quarter. And the other the other issue we have with the consumption numbers in the national accounts is that they are subject to a fair bit of revision. So if you remember back to um, the second half of 2017, you know, the consumption numbers looked really dire. Um, according to the national accounts. And a lot of that weakness was um, eventually revised away. So this is why I, I sort of feel like the RBA is not going to panic too much. They're going to give the data um, another chance. Um, and so while we might see some forecast revisions from them in, in their statement on monetary policy in February, I don't think they'll be sort of hitting the panic button anytime soon. I spoke to uh, Shane Oliver the other day from AMP and uh, he he's now predicting a rate cut in 2019 where's mm-hmm. your head where's your head at on that score so for some time we've had a, a view that the RBA would be doing nothing in 18 and nothing in 2019 um, I think we feel pretty comfortable about that view I mean I think some of the uncertainty around the GDP numbers together with you know clearly the RBA is a lot more worried about the supply of credit being um, more constrained into the economy than it would otherwise like. And the combination of those two things, I think, will mean that they are a long way away from, from lifting rates. So I feel very comfortable that they won't be hiking rates in 2019. Um, so I do feel like if rates are going to move in any direction, it's probably more likely to be down rather than up. But, you know, I think from the RBA's perspective, they would need to be looking at an economy that is considerably weaker than they forecast for them to to sort of get to that point in the sense that, you know, if you feel like the supply of credit is the issue, then reducing the price of credit is probably not going to do very much all else equal. So the rationale for cutting rates has to be, you know, basically because you think you're going to really undershoot on the inflation story and you're worried about the unemployment rate starting to go back up. That's the point, isn't it? I mean, if we're in a you know, a credit squeeze, then uh, maybe what what's going on with interest rates doesn't matter much. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think the other thing, you know, that the RBA have sort of said is this housing slowdown is a little bit unusual in the sense that it's taking place against the backdrop where the labour market's been pretty robust and, you know, growth, you know, generally speaking, has been somewhere between sort of two and three quarters and, and three and a quarter. So that that's a pretty solid backdrop, um, you know, for a correction in, in house prices. So, you know, were that story to change and you got a housing correction taking place against an economy that was looking less robust and a labour market that was starting to show signs of deterioration, then, you know, I think they would probably, and, and rightly so, become a little bit more anxious about, you know, what that what that looked like for the domestic economy over the next few years. And, you know, the other complicating factor that they will have to deal with, you know, as we move through 2019 is, is that, you know, the global cycle is looking pretty long in the tooth um, and I guess you know investors uh, you know generally feel pretty anxious about how how much further the global expansion has to run and if we're in a world where you know, get a little bit more tightening from some central banks um, you know especially in in the developed economies then you know does that signal that the end of the cycle is close and in that sort of environment it would be very difficult for the RBA I I think to to realistically contemplate higher rates. Thanks very much Sally. A pleasure Alan.
And now to discuss the week in technology, here's Steve Sammartino, author and futurist. Well, Steve, Amazon said they're going to go with some sort of subscription service, a discount subscription. What is it and uh, how big a deal is it? I think it's a really big deal, especially for Australian investors who are invested in retail, Coles and Woolworths and other grocery stocks. It's called the Subscribe and Save, and it's one of their most successful uh, products in overseas markets. And basically what it is is you subscribe to bulk grocery-style items, which are highly predictable in nature in terms of their usage. So think of things like toilet paper, nappies, washing powder, pet food, and they come in at pretty heavy discounts, anywhere between 15 and 50%. And it's, it's a way for them to really start to get deep into the home grocery market. And, and, and the reason it's really important is because these are used as traffic generators with Coles and Woolworths. They are what dis, is displayed on the gondola ends. And the big multinationals you know, like Kimberly Clark and Mars Pet Food and so on, you know, they rely on, on these for, for big volume. So in a way, it's a, it's a kind of siphoning strategy that Amazon has used to bust up and siphon out out of some of the retail habits that people have. I suppose the, th- the thing about subscriptions, which make it so powerful, is that once someone has subscribed, that's where they're going to shop from now on. That's right. So it gets you, gets you in the habit of getting groceries delivered. And Amazon are far, far better at the last mile than um, Coles and Woolworths have historically been. Coles and Woolworths have had real problems with people buying their groceries online because they offer pretty much full service and there's always out of stocks or the bananas come and they aren't uh, quite right. But this idea of splitting up, it's a divide and conquer strategy, really smart. And one of the other things that sort of isn't, isn't spoken about so much, it's not just the price, but Coles and Woolworths, anywhere between 15 and 30% of their revenue on big brands comes from what they call cooperative advertising. So that's the advertising to be in the catalogue on the gondola end. And if these brands start doing a lot of that volume through Amazon, which sounds like it's you know, it's highly achievable and it'll make people's shopping a bit easier to have those less bulky items. And it really could start to, you know, bleed out some of that money that Coles and Woolworths haven't really been affected by e-commerce yet, like clothing and other traditional department store retail has. Uh, the other big news this week was the ACCC's report on Google and Facebook having um, responded to a, a request from the Treasurer to investigate digital platforms came out with a report of several hundred pages. I imagine, Steve, you've read it all, stayed up all night and, uh, and you know uh, memorised it. I have memorised it, Alan. I've read the entire thing. Well, I've skimmed it. I haven't read it all. But um, it, it was actually quite a, a global leading thing that we've seen from the ACCC. And the ACCC has a, I think, as a regulator, has a pretty good reputation around the world. And I, I think it's long overdue. In fact, there's, there's a lot going around the world now in the term of tech lash, which is what people are calling it, the pushback against technology, because almost by stealth, they have come up with what I'm calling digital colonialism. They're coming in and stealing people's data, stealing other media outlets' content, and then repurposing that for all of the profitability. The most interesting thing is that the cut that they've put into journalism via taking and repurposing other people's content and getting all of the advertising around that. I think the, the recommendations that came out, I, I think, were, were pretty strong. And for me, the two key things out of the 11 recommendations was algorithmic transparency. So what is in these algorithms? What information are they getting? And what decides what and how people see? And how big is their dragnet of information that they have on people? And the other one is the abuse of market power. And the way that they abuse market power is a little bit differentiated. It's not so much as if they go out and quash uh, their competitors. 
often when someone arrives who looks like they might be a threat, because they control the operating systems, they can see the usage of their competitors before they become too big and acquire these corporations or you know, put, push them out by saying, uh, which Google has done, uh, saying that they don't apply to the, the terms and conditions or operating outside of that. And I think that with algorithms, what we'll, we'll see is, is pretty much like we saw in grocery and food sort of 100 years ago, where we need to have the back of the cereal box tell us what the ingredients is. So I really think we're going to see that form of regulation where we can either opt entirely out of the algorithm or we'll be able to see exactly what the ingredients of that algorithm are. Interesting. Thanks, Steve. Absolute pleasure, Alan. Happy birthday, Dickie Betts, who turned 75 yesterday. He's the great guitarist from the Allman Brothers, one of my favourite bands. And here's Jessica, his signature guitar solo. That's all from me. Have a great week.